Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Since I talk to people about how to have better relationships and better conversations, the one topic everybody seems to want to challenge me on has to do with how to do with, quote unquote, difficult people. Now, as I've said many times on this show, and especially a couple of weeks ago with Adam Kahane, what's difficult for you may not be difficult for me. But today I want to focus on a special kind of difficulty. What if that difficult person, quote unquote, involves harassment or bullying? So I want to talk about what each of them are. I want to talk about how to recognize it. I want to talk about what you should be doing about it. I want to talk about what you can do as an individual or as a manager if you rec- if you see it in your team or if it's happening for you. We're going to be focused on Uh, bullying and harassment and taking action on it. So with me today is Dr. Susan Strauss. Susan is a nationally recognized expert. She's an author and an international speaker on discrimination, harassment, and bullying in both the workplace and in schools. And so she'll work with private and public sector organizations to provide a whole range of services for business, legal, healthcare, education, and governments. She investigates workplace and school place complaints on bullying, discrimination, and harassment. She's an expert witness on all three in a variety of lawsuits, and she's been a speaker at a variety of international conferences around the world on these topics. She also provides training on a variety of management and organizational issues. She coaches managers, employees, and she can assess the workplace climate and provide a series of interventions that will enhance productivity and employee engagement. So, Susan, it is with great pleasure to welcome you to the show. I'm really looking forward to talking about it. It's a difficult topic, but a really important one. Hey, thanks, Wanda. I'm glad to be a part of your show. And it is a difficult topic for people to even talk about in, you know, social settings, let alone talking about the issues of harassment and bullying in the workplace. So you are right on the mark when you say it's difficult. Yeah. So out of curiosity, what got you started on the work with harassment and bullying? Well, um, I was teaching, actually, high school students, and this was back in about 1980, let's see, 86, I believe, and our high school students were complaining about being sexually harassed where they worked because they were all juniors and seniors, so they all had jobs. So a colleague and I put together a rather rough curriculum and started teaching it, and we did a survey to find out um, to what degree were the students being sexually harassed, because that's all anybody was looking at at that point um, in the workplace. And we also, as sort of an afterthought, decided we'd ask them about their experiences with sexual harassment in the school. And what we found is that the kids were much more likely to be sexually harassed at school than at work. Um, And that sort of spearheaded my whole journey. And then, of course, we got into um, 
I, got, I was on a national TV program, and an attorney saw the program, and he had one of the first lawsuits in the country that actually, interestingly enough, was male-to-male, and he wanted me to be the expert witness, and I said, I don't even know what it is, and he told me, and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm no expert, and he said, well, you're the only one that's written a book on it um, for high school kids, so he said, we want to use you, so that started my work in uh, working as an expert witness, and now I work as an expert witness for lawsuits against um, school districts, against colleges and universities, and against the workplace. So that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. So I've been doing it, and it's been increasing since about, like I said, about 1980, about 1986, I would say. And now that's what I do full-time. I don't work for anybody anymore, uh, which I've done in the past, but haven't for probably, oh gosh, I don't even know, the last mm, 15 or 20 years, I guess, I've been in business for myself. So it's very rewarding. It can be emotionally draining. And some days when I get a new lawsuit I'm working on, it's like, Oh, seriously? It's 2019. How can people still be doing this kind of behavior? So anyway, that's what I do. I do some other kinds of consulting as well, and uh, I conduct webinars on a variety of topics. Right. I can imagine it's, um, I don't think this is, this goes away anytime soon. I'm glad that we're doing lots better education on it than we have in the past, but I think it's sort of part of the human condition and we just have to get smarter at spotting it, stopping it, protecting against it, defending against it, all those good things. I'm hoping, at least that's the purpose here. For the record, by the way, Susan's book is called Sexual Harassment and Bullying. That's a guide to keeping kids safe and holding schools accountable. And although that's written for the school perspective, I think you're going to find an awful lot of tips for the workplace. All right, Susan, let's focus on harassment. I want to talk the first segment of this show about harassment, and then we'll come to the bullying in the second sure. um, show. Now, there's sexual harassment, and there's other forms of harassment. So how do you describe all of these? What are your definitions? Well, you know, it's the whole typical definition that it's, um, and this is true for any of the protected classes. And by protected class, I'm referring to a group of people that are protected because of their characteristics. So it would be sex, gender, race, disability, religion, etc. So the the um, legal definition is it has to be unwelcome, it has to be severe and or pervasive enough that it interferes with an individual's ability to do his or her work and creates a hostile work environment. It has to be occur because of that protected class, so sex, race, uh, disability, etc., and it has to be so severe and or pervasive that a reasonable person would see it as such. Uh, so sometimes they use the standard, the reasonable person standard, which is the formal title of the standard. But when it's a woman that's been harassed, they may say reasonable woman if it's for sexual harassment because men and women do view sexual attention in the workplace differently. Um, and if it's any of the other protected classes, they very often will say a reasonable 
victim or a reasonable black man or a reasonable Muslim woman. Um, so they do offer a little bit of flexibility in that particular standard. So it doesn't matter if it's sexual or racial or disability. Any of those use the same definition of welcomeness, severity, and pervasiveness, and the reasonable person-slash-woman-slash-victim standards. And it's got to be, oh, it's really got to be very severe or pervasive for it to constitute illegal harassment. More often than not, the behavior that would occur in the workplace um, or in the schools, but we'll just talk about workplace, is more a violation of the workplace policy than it would be an actual violation of the law. The law is very, very strict. And those standards are are hard to um, demonstrate in the courts. Okay. Well, we certainly have seen some of those in recent times in the front new headlines, at least in the United States. All right. So it's unwelcome. It's pervasive. It's severe enough to prevent your effective work or to cause undue stress, and a reasonable person would have to see it as such. And it could be right. against any of the protected classes, like sex, gender, race, religion, disability, and so forth. Okay. Right. And, and that's an important element, because in order for it to be illegal harassment, it has to be because of. That's okay. the clear. That's the clear standard. It has to have occurred because of your sex or your disability, et cetera. Okay, fabulous. All right, so let's talk about, you know, suppose I'm a person in the workplace of any of the protected classes, and I start to feel that the behavior in front of me is not what I would expect. Let's just put it at a gentle level. We've not yet met the legal definition, but I'm feeling uncomfortable with it, shall we say. What is it, I mean, what should I be looking for to say this is just someone being awkward or this is someone being a little insistent versus it's tipping into what would be harassment? And did you say that you're observing it or that you're experiencing it? Let's say I'm experiencing it. Let's start with the recipient first, okay. and then we can go on and, to the other the places. the distinction is somewhat important. What we do know, let me just throw this out there, is that even if you are a witness or a bystander, the, the behavior can have almost as much of an impact on you as the bystander as it can on the target itself. So in essence, if you've got an individual within a department, say, that is a harasser and targets only one individual typically, but everybody else is aware that it's going on, they see it, they hear it, they are also negatively impacted by it. So in essence, you can have multiple victims within a department, for example, even though you may have only one target. So I just wanted to throw that in. Um, So what, and that's referred to, by the way, as third-party harassment, where it's not directed to you, but yet you still are experiencing some of the same emotional trauma, if you will, that the target is. So what would, well, you've got many options that are open to you if you're experiencing it. One, of course, is if you feel safe in doing so, that you can communicate to the harasser how 
and I'm just going to use sex right now because it's easier. You're a female, so we'll say how his behavior is impacting you. So you always use observable, objective behavior. So you may say, John, when you call me honey, that feels disrespectful, and I'd like you to stop. Very simple. So you identify the behavior. You use an I statement. You say that it makes you feel uncomfortable and that you expect it to stop. Now, most people do not inform the harasser. A study done in 2016 by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, found that 90% of targets of harassment do not report it, nor do they confront the um, perpetrator. That's a high number because it's not safe. The retaliation is the primary reason that they don't, and by the way, retaliation in 2017, don't have the 2018 statistics yet, but in 2017, retaliation was 49% of the complaints that went to the EEOC. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that was the fifth year in a row that retaliation complaints were had increased. They were the most likely complaint, and retaliation is more difficult to disprove within the courts. Now, what else can you do? You could, if you didn't want to verbally inform the harasser how you felt, you could write it down on a, on a piece of paper, and you could either stick it in his mailbox. Do not email it because it could get sent to everybody and you don't want that to happen. It could be altered and you don't want that to happen. So you could stick it in his mailbox um, or on his, put it in an envelope, seal it and put it on his computer monitor, for example, if he works with a computer. Uh, That would be another thing you could do. A third thing you could do is you could take a hard copy of your harassment policy, underline the aspects of that policy that align with the harasser's misconduct, and just anonymously stick that one into his mailbox or post it on his computer monitor or put it at his workstation. You also, if you decide not to do any of those, the important thing to do is to document. Document, document, document. And you document as much detail as you can. The more detail, the more credibility is to your documentation. So you would document exactly what happened. Not only the words that will say John said, but what was his demeanor? How close did he get when he spoke to you in that fashion? What was the look on his face? Um, did he touch you at the same time? If so, where? What kind of a touch? How long did it last? Um, so you document if you said anything to him, and if so, what? If you said anything to him, how he responded, if so, what? You document if there were any witnesses and who they were, uh, and you document how long the interaction um, occurred. And even if you do nothing else, just do the documenting, because if the behavior continues, you may decide to either go to your manager or go to HR, which, again, is another step. And when you have the incidents documented, make a copy of it. You give a copy of the documentation to the manager or HR, and you keep a copy for yourself. But when you walk out of that manager's office or you walk out of HR's office, you need to ask them, 
what are you going to do as a result of me coming forward? You want to get it down as to what they say they're going to do. Then you also will document this meeting that you had with either the manager or HR, what was discussed in the meeting, and that you specifically asked them, what are you going to do as a result of me coming forward? So if you go to, for example, your manager, and it appears as though your manager has not taken any action, and your manager may have, but the, but the harassment continues, you go back to your manager and you say, the harassment is continuing and it has to stop. What are you going to do to stop it? If the manager is ineffective in that realm, then you go to the manager's boss, which probably is a director, and you go all the way up as need be until you get a reaction, even up to going to the board. You could also then, if nobody is stopping the behavior, contact the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. You could contact your state's human rights um, division, and some states call it something other than human rights, but your state. You could, depending upon the severity and the pervasiveness, decide you're going to contact an attorney. And if, in fact, the uh, harassment included, for example, grabbing you in the breast, then you would want to contact law enforcement. So there are just a number of steps that are available to you. Hopefully, it gets addressed and you don't have to decide to switch to a different department or quit. So those are the steps. Right. Well, you know, I can just almost feel my blood pressure rising as you go through that list of thinking all the things that you can do. But I really like your notion about the documentation because we always say to people, if there's a problem, document it. But what's really interesting to me is how specific you were about what the documentation needs to be. Presumably, my writing this in an email trail with time and date and that, or in a, a Word document or in a written document. So you said the words that were said, the demeanor, how close the person was, if there's a look in their face, if they touched you, how long, what they said, what was your response, what did you say, was there anybody in witness, and so on. And just just all of those details for how long it lasted, everything you can imagine to write all of that down. I think that's incredibly important for people to it understand is. that's what you and need to be doing. Excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt. I didn't sorry, no problem. last part because I interrupted. What did you say? I'm just repeating. Nothing relevant oh. here. Okay. The, the, as I mentioned, the documentation is key, and the more detail, the more credibility there is to the documentation. People who are lying, which fortunately is not very common in this kind of misconduct, but people who lie will very often have very vague and ambiguous documentation without much detail. Okay. So that's why you want to have as much detail as you can. Okay. All right. That's important to know. Now, I want to flip the, the, the coin on this one because... I know, especially around this topic of sexual harassment, there are a lot of men who get very nervous about this. And they're very worried about getting on the wrong side, hopefully unintentionally, of a sexual harassment charge, or even just as something as simple as a manager coming to them and saying, you handled this inappropriately from a sexual harassment point of view. They're just anxious about it. So if I have been accused of inappropriate sexual conduct, what is it that I should be doing myself? Well, of course, it depends if, if you, as the perpetrator, 
had done the behavior or not. (laughs) You need to stop and shouldn't have done it in the first place. Um, But depending upon what is being said as to what you did, um, if you did it, you should own it. And you need to give a commitment that it will not be repeated. Um, And I would recommend that if you are guilty of it, that you also document that somebody came and talked to you about it, what the outcome of the meeting was, um, and whether there was an investigation, because that's key, and what the outcome of the investigation was. It's um, And not to speak to anybody about the complaint against you. I mean, you have a friend or somebody you may want to, but you don't want that kind of discussion to start going around your department or even around your organization. And we know that such things as gossip, for example, let's say that you had done something and there was gossip now about you, gossip of a sexual nature in and of itself can be considered sexual harassment. So you just have to be very careful about what you disclose to others within the organization. Um, If you have been accused of it and you are guilty of it, I would recommend that that individual get some um, sexual harassment training. If it's something, though, that you as the perpetrator have been doing for quite some time, it maybe wouldn't hurt for you to go and see a therapist. Training uh, is, is an essential prevention Um, method that all organizations should be doing. But training in and of itself is not enough. So on a broader scale, the training, um, first of all, the EEOC study demonstrated that it wasn't working, and primarily because the emphasis is too much on the law and not on the pragmatic, practical underpinnings of the whole issue of sexual or other forms of harassment. So training needs to be Ideally, it should be conducted by a subject matter expert. It's almost impossible for HR to stay current on everything going on in the whole law of harassment. And it really needs to be a minimum of four hours. Managers and HR need a training that would be different or expanded upon than what employee training would be. They need to know what their moral and legal obligations are, they need to really be able to recognize the behavior, even when it's a subtle, nuanced kind of harassment. They need to know the actual tactics. What do I, what do I say to my direct yeah. report, yeah. who I have either heard about or seen um, direct their misconduct towards so-and-so and so-and-so? And what I find in my expert witness work is that managers in HR don't know how to recognize it and do not know how to intervene. And what I've also yeah. found is that HR, who are those that are tasked with, in, with investigations, do not know how to do them. And yeah. that adds to the liability to the organization. So in terms of the perpetrator, there are things you can do, assuming you're willing to assume responsibility for your actions, um, if you, in fact, were guilty of the complaint. And if you didn't do it, All you can do is support yourself, provide witnesses that would um, verify your side of the story, and then I would also document as well, just so it's down for your notice if you need it later. Okay, fair enough. All right, so let's turn, you said this, you know, managers need to be able to recognize it and to know what to do. 
Um, what is it that managers need to be looking for, and what action should they be taking? Well, you know, some of the some of the harassment, that, and we'll talk sexual again, but it can be. It can be any of the protected class harassment. It can be very subtle. It can be very nuanced. So, for example, it might be in the innuendo of the tone of voice. It might be where the individual is sexual harassment. Are they looking somebody up and down? Are they staring at a woman's breasts? Are they raising their eyebrows? You know, some of those nonverbal kinds of behaviors. Even if somebody tells a joke that is sexual, but I mean, it's not like it's a dirty joke. In fact, it's kind of a fun joke, but it's sexual. You've got to intervene on that anyway, because if you don't, you're giving tacit approval to everyone else within the department that telling a sexual joke is in fact okay. They need to stay somewhat current in case law. For example, there has been two appellate courts that have ruled that using the N-word towards a person of color even one time is considered Mm. severe enough that there's probable cause to take it to court. So you've got to know those things. Um, And... Same with name calling, whether it's honey or sweetie or snookums or stud muffin or whatever the case might be, that they've got to recognize those kinds of behaviors, even if they are done in jest, that they may, may be a violation of the organization's policy. And that's what you always want to think of is, is this a violation of our policy? And, you know, it has to be balanced because at the same time, you don't want a sterile work environment where nobody can ever give somebody a hug, for example, or teasingly say, oh, yeah, you think you're just a stud muffin over there. I mean, those, how do you balance that? And that becomes a challenge for managers. Um, And some departments and organizations, for example, are a little bit more free-flowing with that sort of thing than others. But then you've got to decide what exact kind of climate do we want here. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even if you teasingly call somebody honey or stud muffin, is that okay? And And it might be for your organization. So all of those things need to be discussed among managers within a specific organization to get some fine-tuning for themselves, and then managers need to be aware that they have to follow the policy, that if, for example, Susie comes to the manager and says, I just need to let you know during lunch today Johnny was telling dirty jokes, well, now the manager knows, and Based on policy and law, when you hear these things, you must respond. So then the manager needs to know that she or he pulls Johnny in and needs to know, and that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion, right. but needs to know um, what are some routine statements that you make to Johnny, and then there's ways that you ask about it, and things like, um, you know, I hear that you all have lunch together in the cafeteria and Johnny says oh yeah yeah and 
So the manager will say, what, what kinds of things do you talk about when you're down there anyway? And Johnny says, oh, you know, so-and-so's daughter's getting married, and George, why, his son just had a daughter, or his son, daughter-in-law just had a baby, and Mohammed, he's going home for the summer to the Middle East, and uh, so, you know, that kind of thing. But the manager needs to know how to question it, and then to say things like, well, I, I understand you tell some jokes when you're in during lunch. Oh, yeah, 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 we do. Well, what kind of jokes do you tell? So you're always asking open-ended questions, not yes or no. You don't give any more information than you need to to the alleged joke teller in this case. And then you say to Johnny, Johnny, I understand you told some dirty jokes today. Tell me about that. And Johnny says, okay, all right, yeah, I did. I shouldn't have, I know. So the manager then needs to document all of that and give a hard copy of the policy to Johnny, get a commitment from Johnny that he won't repeat the behavior. And then what the manager needs to do is to give that documentation to human resources. So human resources needs to be the place of a central repository of all of the informal resolutions that occurred by management. Um, And then we then that's a whole other thing about doing investigations, et cetera. But most managers do not do any of that. They don't know that they should. So that's another topic of training, for example. What is your responsibility for documenting? Because the law will say that it's illegal if it's severe and or pervasive. So if HR gets this message from the manager that the manager just confronted Johnny about joke telling and HR goes to put that into her um, HR file, and then she might see, oh, my gosh, this is the fourth one of these informal resolutions that a manager has been doing on Johnny. I better get involved. So then it goes to a whole other Right. Uh, a whole other um, step in terms of doing an investigation and maybe a verbal warning or a written warning, et cetera. So there's, there's all of that that managers need to know, and they generally don't do that because they don't know they're supposed to. Well, actually, I think there's a bit of comfort in this one in that, first off, we have to have had some discussions as a management group around what kind of climate we want and what do we think is crossing the line and when is it crossing the line and so on. And we all need to know what we're going to do should somebody slip. But we're talking about very simple, very subtle, very human behaviors that get addressed at the moment as opposed to waiting to escalate them where we've got a whole pile of them and I now have to take a major investigation, embarrass everybody, put you know formal write-up, all those sorts of things. It's, it's this steady, small, informal resolution, resolution that I think should give people comfort that this is being handled in a good way, both from the person who's accused as well as from the victim of the harassment. Well, I agree, and I think sometimes managers, well, I think to me they look at the, they should look at it as any other kind of performance issue. Did somebody, was, is somebody consistently late to work? Well, you confront them on that, and hopefully that's enough to change the behavior. I don't think you need to make a mountain out of a molehill when it's not necessary. Um, at the same time, um, you want to make sure, I think for the sake of the perpetrator, that in this case, a he gets this feedback because if yeah. he's been making, telling dirty jokes on occasion, not often, but on occasion, or calling one of his coworkers honey, 
if nobody calls him out on it, he gets the message yeah. that it's okay. So that's not doing him any favors either. Um, I know I call people honey. I call all my friends honey, and I even call my male friends honey. Um, but I do even, although they're my friends, I still say, is it okay if I call you that? And at work, I think people might get where you almost are like a, quote, family, and you get so comfortable with each other that the boundaries then become blurred between being a professional colleague and being a friend, so to speak. And many people become good friends at work. So there's just so many different yeah. so many different issues around this. And then again, like I said before, you want to balance that with hey, sometimes you just have fun at work and isn't that okay? And yeah, so it's sure. um yeah, it's discussions that the that the organization needs to sponsor to get some clarity. Well, and presumably there's a lot of individual differences. So one person might be quite comfortable being called honey or sweetie, and somebody else might be completely uncomfortable being called honey or sweetie. In fact, I'll give you a case of someone I know personally where a woman just doesn't like physical contact. A touch on the shoulder, a hug, or if you're in Europe, you know, the kiss on the cheek, just not comfortable for her. Not that anybody's doing anything bad or has any bad intention or anything. It just isn't comfortable. Whereas yeah. the men in the organization are quite comfortable with that, you know, yeah. much more physically touching even with each other and with other women as well. Intentionality is not an issue, and it's not the formal sexual harassment that we often think of in the headline newspapers, but there's a difference in expectation. And what you're saying is that difference needs to be discussed. Well, it does, and in this scenario that you just described, um, you're talking still about a man touching a woman, and the power differential, men have more power than women, period. So I think that's something that men need to recognize as well, that while their intent may be positive or neutral, that the mere fact that they are a man and touching a woman without her permission can raise some discomfort, I think, in any woman. Um, and I think that men, men need to be aware of that, that they have power by the mere fact that they're men, that they are stronger, that they're taller. They're usually the ones that have higher organizational positions. So that is one thing that needs to be addressed. But I also agree with you that some people, I think we all know them, that just have a heightened sensitivity to touch. So I always recommend that if you do want to hug somebody, for example, that you just ask. You say, oh, maybe maybe they've given you bad news about themselves. And you might want to say, oh, would you like a hug? Or, oh, I'd like to give you a hug or something along those lines. Or maybe even saying, geez, I would like a hug. I can remember um, being at a conference and seeing um, a physician that I had worked with and hadn't seen for a while. And I am a toucher. I do it sometimes. I'm not even aware of it. And I went up to him and put my arms around him to give him a hug. And as soon as I did it, oh, he just tightened. And I thought, oh, I blew that one. And um, I said, oh, I'm sorry. I should have asked if you're comfortable with a hug. So I really tell people to ask 
is it okay if I give you a hug or you seem sad? I'd like to give you a hug. Are you okay with that? So I think those are things we're not used to doing either. I still struggle with it personally because it's second nature for me to hug somebody, and I don't always ask like like I should. But you also brought up even a, a touch on the shoulder or the arm mm-hmm. can very often is just very innocent, and it's just another way we communicate. But there would be people, whether male right. or female, who are just uncomfortable with any kind of touch, and it right. needs to be respected. Right. I, I do have female clients who I will ask about touch because not everybody is comfortable with it, and it just varies person to person. Um, yeah. So, and I think you're right, Susan, that all of these subtle forms are the ones that make everybody so nervous. But if yeah. we just had a better way of talking about it, a better way of asking, a better way of giving feedback, a better assurance that the investigations or the informal resolutions wouldn't have such high consequences, I think we'd be in a better place on dealing with this one. Well, I um, do too. And, and, you know, just because somebody touches somebody, it doesn't mean that it was because of sex. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily sexual harassment or against a policy, it might just be people have different boundaries. You know, my boundary is, I guess I'm a little out there. I like to touch and hug, but other people's, their boundary is much more close, close in. And so sometimes I see the touch is not even a sexual thing at all, but just a touch that one human can do to another that has nothing to do with sex. I mean, one of the things I like seeing now is I think men are much more open and you see men hugging each other so much more or patting each other. And I don't, of course, this is my age, but boy, you sure didn't see that when I was growing up or when I was in my 20s and 30s. And now I see my son-in-law who's uh, shoot, how old is he? Well, he's in his mid-40s, I guess. And every time he sees his friends, I mean, they all hug each other. Yeah. I just think it's great. I love seeing yeah, it. That's great. That's great. All right. Well, Susan, let me sort of wrap up this bit about the harassment. And I want to then shift and talk about bullying. But just to sort of summarize, what I've taken away from your conversation thus far is that formally from a legal point of view, harassment is defined against any of the protected classes, sex, race, religion, disability, etc., when it's unwelcome, pervasive, and or severe, and enough to, to prevent work or cause stress, and a reasonable person would see it as that. But we all know yeah. that the more subtle behaviors within organizations are the ones that get everybody quite uncomfortable. And those are the ones where we need to have some discussion among management of what our climate looks like here and where we also need to have some reasonable conversations with each other about our own boundaries, our own expectations, what makes us comfortable, not comfortable. I really like this idea that before it escalates to the lawyers or the attorneys, especially for the subtle things, that we have a way of giving feedback back to a manager or back to the perpetrator, and we ask people to do something about it. And along the way, if I'm feeling really bad about it, I should be documenting it in infinite detail, like how long it lasted, when it lasted, what I said, what the response was, what the look was, all of that, so that I've got more credibility when I need to take action on that one. Wow, you did a good job. That's great. One thing I've, I should have added is it is never the responsibility of the target to 
tell the harasser to stop. Okay. I mean, if the target feels safe to do so, I always think you go for it because it gives you back your power. But the person that's responsible for making the harasser stop is the manager or HR. It's basically the organization because the organization is the one that's responsible for um, the harasser's behavior. Okay. All right. That's a good point. Thank you very much. But at the same time, if I feel comfortable. A target, for example, will tell them to stop. That would be bad news. And add right. to the liability. Okay. All right. That's good in, Good information. Okay. Fair enough. Now, let's shift gears. Let's talk about bullying. Um, a lot of people describe a behavior of someone around them that they think is bullying, but I, I'm not convinced we've understood bullying very well. So how do you define bullying? Oh, you are right on the mark. The problem with the term bullying um, is that there are so many different definitions, and the definitions vary on what magazine you might be reading to where it is that you work to who's doing the research. Is the research being done by a psychologist, by a sociologist, whoever? And so we've got all these definitions, and they don't all align. What I encourage organizations to do is basically to not even use the word and to focus instead on the behaviors. But the some of the common verbiage in definitions include such things as repeated. So it's it's behavior, misconduct that is repeated, that it is persistent, that it is intended to humiliate and degrade and intimidate another person. Those are sort of the key components. Um, if somebody does want to have, for example, a bullying policy in their workplace, then I recommend that they find a definition that fits for their organization. They also need to give some examples of behavior that would constitute bullying, but also examples of behavior that would not constitute bullying, but often gets labeled as bullying. For example... Um, conflict between two people is not bullying. It is conflict. And ideally, you would like conflict uh, that is repaired, of course, in the workplace. Now, does that mean that somebody may not use bullying, quote-unquote, tactics in their conflict resolution, which would be inappropriate? Yes, but conflict itself is not bullying. Um, managers giving performance feedback and um, criticism to a direct report is not bullying. Now, might their tactic be one of bullying? Yes, that might. that's a whole other issue. So there should be a list of what is and is not considered bullying. Um, but I encourage people just to have, for example, an offensive conduct policy. And they would give um, even somewhat of a definition of what do we mean by offensive and give some ideas about that and just not even use the word bullying. I think it gets thrown out there so easily and, you know, it's like, well, what do you mean by by bullying? So um, that's what I tell people. But generally, it when we think about offensive conduct in the workplace, it can be everything from... This can be subtle 
to not returning phone calls, to not returning emails, to bumping into somebody and not saying excuse me, to not saying thank you, and then it can escalate to sabotaging one's work, um, taking credit for what other people have done. It can be um, bullying, quote-unquote, or offensive behavior can possibly be harassment. So let's say, for example, that I am a, I'm going to use the word bully just for ease today, that I am a bully, but the only people that I bully are, we're going to say, um, somebody who's gay or somebody who's, uh, maybe as a woman, I only bully men, uh, which is unlikely. I bully other people before I probably bully a man because they have more power. Maybe I only bully um, African Americans or I only bully somebody, people that are disabled. You get the idea. Yep. So my bullying then is actually harassment. So if I'm bullying, quote unquote, somebody who's black, for example, I I might never say anything about them being black. I might not bring up color. I might not bring up the awful history. I might not bring up lynching. I might not say verbally anything that is overtly racial. But I treat them egregiously. Why? Just because they're black. So that would be an example of what we would call, um, it depends if we went under color or if we went under race, um, but it would be race-based racial harassment. So there can be race-based, there can be gender-based, there can be disability-based, and that would be the nexus of where um, bullying and harassment come together. So that would be another form of quote-unquote bullying, but it really wouldn't be. It would really be harassment. People might go out and, um, oh, key somebody's car, for example, Um, take credit for work that somebody else has done, throw things, hit people. Um, I do work in the operating room. Boy, you should see what goes on there. It's terrible. Um, I mean, some of these surgeons, you want to talk about bullies, and they've got scalpels in their hands. So there, there's the verbal bullying, there's the physical bullying, um, and the verbal and the physical, of course, can also be lead to, a, a, well, both harassment and bullying have huge negative emotional consequences to the victim. So that, and since we're talking about bullying, I mean, people will end up quitting, they'll go into therapy, they um, will get... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and on and on it goes. It is much more than just saying to somebody, you know, hey, you you bitch, what did you do that for? That is not bullying. It, it's an offensive word, but it's not bullying. And if you got PTSD from being called one negative word, then you've probably got some other issues that are going on as well. But bullying and harassment both have huge emotional ramifications to the target. Right. I certainly have talked to people who've had some really negative consequences for the kind of behavior that they have been subjected to. And to come back to something you said at the very beginning, Susan, it's not just the victim. It's other people around who watch it and yeah. then who feel this is not the kind of place I want to be. And so their performance is not, they're not engaged. They're not giving their best and they ultimately exit. 
So yes, it does and have. You are right on. They're awesome. not engaged. They're not productive. Um, and it is, as with harassment, you've got this whole, everybody that's aware of it going on, um, it impacts them too, and nobody ends up feeling safe. So morale drops, productivity drops, absenteeism increases. It, nobody wins when both forms of misconduct are occurring. Okay. All right. So you talked about, um, so there's some obvious ones that are really terrible, like hitting somebody. We, we would all agree that that would go in any offensive conduct policy at a workplace. Yeah. You also said some of them are much more subtle. What's the kind of things that you typically hear in the offensive conduct policy that's on the more subtle space that a company would actually really put in their handbook? Well, I think some of the ones that are more subtle are um, not returning phone calls and not returning emails. Um, Those things are almost invisible. Nobody would really know what's occurring except the actual target and the bully, him or herself, because nobody else would really know about it. It's not like somebody... Um, coming in and yelling at you where everybody in your work area can hear them yelling at you. Uh, That would not be so much. I think sometimes sabotage can also be very difficult to identify. Some, excuse me, some people will say that the, again, I'm using the term bullying just for today, but the bullying that they experience is even difficult to to report because it it it's just so it's just so subtle it's ignore it's ignoring people for example it's isolating them um so if let's say you had a woman who was being bullied quote unquote by other women um and i'm going to use a nurse as an example because nurses there's a real problem with nurse to nurse bullying and so let's say that one way that a nurse gets bullied, if you will, is that when she calls on some of her colleagues to help her with a patient, they don't come. They may bully her by ignoring her, never acknowledging her presence. They may bully her by a bunch of them might be going out to lunch. She never gets invited. Um, Or maybe they go out for drinks after work. She never gets invited. So she's isolated. She's ignored. Um, she doesn't get the help that she needs to help with a patient, for example. Um, they seem to be gossiping about her, saying things that aren't true. And she's very unlikely to go to her manager and complain because she's afraid, basically, the manager is going to either think it, if not say it, which is, honey, put on those big girl panties and deal with it. So those are some of the things that are more difficult to put your finger on as to, as to how you're being targeted. And we do, I do a lot about female-to-female hostility in the workplace um, and how, what, it, what it looks like and why does it occur. So I think we, we see the female-to-female stuff more frequently at the same time, I know Catalyst, the organization, came forward and said that um, women also are wonderful at mentoring other women. So we've got some differences there. Uh, but those are some of those subtle, nuanced 
types of things or not giving you the documents that you need. Maybe you're doing a report and you've requested certain documents for data and nobody's given it to you and you've got to give a report to maybe the CEO or the vice president of this or that or maybe even your board of directors and purposely and some of your colleagues purposely sabotaged how you will come across because they withheld information. Those are more of those subtle types of bullying that we definitely see in the workplace. Wow. I, I agree, I too, see and hear a lot of, well, a lot of young females will often say that their biggest challenges are with older females, not necessarily with the male. But I also want to underscore that the bullying that goes on is not just female to female. There's plenty of it that goes on across gender as well as male to male. That happens as well. I don't want to get too far off the loop here. Okay, Susan, we have like two minutes left before we're completely out of time. Um, What should we do if we think bullying is going on? Well, especially as a manager, doing the same thing that I recommended that you would do for harassment. Bullying is not illegal. We have no federal law against it. There are smattering of three or four states that have laws against bullying, but you know what? (laughs) They're not actionable, which means if you're being bullied, that behavior is not illegal. But it is at any organization's peril to not do any investigation, but they won't do it unless they either observe it, hear about it, or it's reported to them. So I would recommend the exact same steps that I suggested for harassment because all of those are valid and unfortunately the bullying behavior, it's frequent that it does not get addressed by management or by HR. So those would be the same exact steps that I would take about documenting, reporting it, uh, giving, handing over the, the, um, your documentation. If you don't get anywhere with the manager or HR, you go above their heads and you keep going. And the fact of the matter is you may not have any control over it. It's not like you can go to the EEOC or your state's human rights department. It won't work. So then your only other resolve is to either move to a different department or quit and go to a different company, which is sad. It's really sad. Really sad. Now, presumably as a manager, if I feel or if I get report of or I feel that there is some inappropriate, I'm going to use your word, offensive conduct that's going on, I have the same policy I would have with harassment that I would inquire. I would ask open-ended questions. I'd get somebody to talk about it. I'd have some verbal warnings. We'd have some examples of what it means to have offensive conduct and so on. We do the exact same process as a manager, yes? Yes, exactly. Okay. Fabulous. Susan, sadly, we are completely out of time. My guest today is Dr. Susan Strauss. There's a book from her, which is uh, highly recommend, Sexual Harassment and Bullying. It's a guide to keeping kids safe and holding schools accountable. Even though it's written for schools, I think you'll find it's quite useful for the workplace. I think what's, this is a hard topic to talk about. Everybody involved gets nervous about it, but we can't ignore that some of this goes on. Some of it is not necessarily an intentional to cause harm. Some of it is just uncomfortable and crossing of boundary lines. But the more we can have conversations about it, the more we can do informal investigations, the more we can address the behavior in a day-to-day manner, the better off I think we're going to be as organizations and for productivity. Susan, thank you for being a guest. Wanda, thank you. And I tell you, you are just spot on in your summary statements. Wow, (laughs) that's great. Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about these issues, which are 
a very much of a passion for me. So thank you. The more we get the word out, the better. So thanks, Wanda. Absolutely. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh, 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 oh,